This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 13th, 2010. Cathay Pacific Flight 780, an Airbus A330 with 322 people on board, is nearing the end of their flight from Surabaya, Indonesia to Hong Kong. Throughout the flight, the pilots have been noticing strange errors on the plane related to their number two engine, but they contact maintenance and they are told it is safe to continue their flight. About 110 miles southeast of the Hong Kong airport, their number two engine stalls and their number one engine begins producing errors. A few minutes later, their number one engine stalls as well. Now, 45 miles from the airport and at an altitude of only 8,000 feet, both engines are dead as the plane begins gliding over the South China Sea. The captain recalls the miraculous landing by Chesley Sully Sullenberger of his plane on the Hudson River the year before and wonders if he can do the impossible and ditch his own plane successfully into the rough sea below. What happens to Cathay Pacific Flight 780? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Ooh, you okay? You sounded far away there. Oh, I was stretching. <laughs> oh, okay. Chris sounding a little, a little different. We're back with another episode. This time, Cathay Pacific Flight 780. We want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. You could see uh, supplemental photos, some of the things that we talk about that maybe if you can't quite picture it in your head, sometimes we'll have a, we might have a photo. that <laughs> So you don't have to picture it in your head. You can picture it in your eyes. Well, there it is in your head. Your eyes are in your head, but. Yeah, I guess so. If you can't picture it in your brain. Well, I guess the eyes yeah. are right by the brain. If you need visual help <laughs> picturing it, that's what our social media is for. Yeah. And opportunity to uh, spread the good word and uh, share it with friends and stuff. Post it on Reddit forums comments and and facebook and all that jazz everywhere all over the place we would love you for it yes we would chris more than me but i still would too yeah so <laughs> cathay pacific <laughs> flight 780 was a passenger flight like i said it was from juanda international airport in surabaya indonesia heading over to hong kong international airport not that long ago april 13th 2010 the flight was crewed by captain malcolm waters who was 35 years old had 7756 flight hours and First Officer David Hayhoe, who was 37, had 4,050 flight hours. The aircraft was an 11-year-old Airbus A330 with 33,378 hours and 12,590 cycles. And there were 309 passengers and 11 flight attendants on board. So the crew got to their departure airport, Juanda, at 12.20 a.m. UTC. And they started their pre-flight procedures. Most of the times I'm going to give are UTC in this episode. But just mm -hmm. for reference, Surabaya is UTC plus 7 and Hong Kong is UTC plus 8. So, for example, I say the crew arrived at 12.20 a.m. UTC. That's actually 7.20 a.m. at their departure airport time. Okay. Because it's plus 7. You add 7 and Hong Kong's plus 8. Just want to throw that out there in case it matters to anyone who's listening. So, Captain does his walk around and notice the fueling dispenser operator was completing a water check of a fuel sample. That's basically just making sure that the fuel's pure, it's not contaminated with water. And the fuel was clear and bright, and the water check was clean. The aircraft was then fueled up, and during the refueling, there were several times when the fueling hose vibrated. The operator thought there might have been some air trapped inside and would stop and start each time these vibrations occurred. When the refueling was done, a visual and water check was performed with the Cathay Pacific Airways ground engineer, and the result was bright and clear with no water. So everything looks good with the fuel. Good water. Good fuel. Oh, yes. That's what I meant. No water. <laughs> good water is no water when it comes yeah. to fuel. <laughs> so Flight 780 departed from Juanda at 1.24 a.m. UTC, and it began climbing to their cruising altitude of 39,000 feet. 
During the climb, the crew noticed some abnormal engine pressure ratio fluctuations on the number two engine with a range of about plus or minus 0.015 of the EPR target. And the EPR is a means of measuring the thrust being produced by the engine. It stands for engine pressure ratio. The number one engine also had some abnormal EPR fluctuations, but the range was narrower than the number two engine. They leveled off at flight level 390 at about 1.58 a.m. UTC, and shortly after, they received a message on their ECAM stating that engine two control system fault with the information engine two slow response. So they contact their maintenance control for advice. And the maintenance engineer asked the crew to check the responses of the engines to thrust lever movements and was told that the EPR was fluctuating around a target. They discussed setting the engine control to N1 mode, which is a way of measuring thrust based on compressor fan speed. We've talked about N1 mode before in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. But since the engine control was normal without any other issues, the maintenance engineer advised to continue in EPR mode. Everything else was normal, so the crew elected to continue to Hong Kong. So they're just getting some weird error messages. We've talked about this before. They contact maintenance, basically calling tech support, run a few checks, and they're like, yeah, that's weird, but it's okay to continue flying. We'll look into it more you know, once you land. It's not impacting the controls so much. It's just like weird errors, right? Right. Like some of the readings are slightly out of range. They got these error messages, but they're still able, you know, their engines are still giving thrust. They're still flying. So they're like, all right, well, you know, everything seems okay. We'll just have to figure out what it is later. We'll just continue with the flight. At 3.15 a.m. UTC, flight 780 descended to flight level 380. After leveling off, the engine 2 control system fault message reappeared. This time, however, the ECAM showed a message that said, avoid rapid thrust changes in addition to the engine 2 slow response message. From 3.17 to 3.27, the crew turned on the engine anti-ice for both engines to see how it would affect the EPR fluctuation, but there was no change in the behavior. So again, they called the maintenance center again, and began talking to another maintenance engineer who had been briefed on the situation. The crew's a little more concerned, and they ask, you know, is it safe to continue this flight? The engineer considered the number one engine was functioning properly, and that the EPR instability for this engine was caused by the full authority digital engine control system that was using the number one engine to compensate for the EPR fluctuation of the number two engine. So basically, it's like, number one still seems fine. It's kind of compensating for number two engine. You know, the maintenance engineer said he'd seen this kind of fluctuation before, it could be related to the variable stator vein system. I learned about these in this episode. Uh-huh. I didn't know what these were. The variable stator veins are adjusted during starting, acceleration, deceleration, and surge conditions to maintain the correct operation of the intermediate pressure and high pressure compressors. Compressors, I said that funny. Compressors uh, within the operational envelope. It seems like they're internal components in the engine that make adjustments to the engine as it's operating. To the compressor, I should say. Just to make it all copacetic? Right, just to keep it operating normally. You know, specifically, like I said, during starting, acceleration. So basically when the states change, mm-hmm. you know, with starting, acceleration, deceleration, surges, you know, it seems like any time other than just cruise, you know, whenever, whenever okay. there's something changing, it seems like the variable stator veins just adjust in order to compensate for that. This is what the maintenance person is saying. It's probably related to that. So he suggested the flight crew monitor the parameters with care, to avoid exceedance and move the thrust levers with care. He also told them to follow the flight crew operations manual procedures if exceedance occurred. He then said the fuel metering unit in the number two engine would be replaced upon arrival in Hong Kong. They accept this information and continue on their flight. So basically they're just told, be delicate with your thrust adjustments. You know, don't adjust it too rapidly. You know, be uh, smooth and slow, methodical (laughs) with it. Don't make any sudden movements. Yeah, 
and that everything should be fine. And he's already kind of speculating some, you know, maintenance that's going to be done once they land in Hong Kong. And it tells them, go ahead, you know, y'all are fine to fly. And they continue with their flight. Are they nervous at this point? Are they like, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, they were worried. But again, the crew decides to continue the flight. You know, they're like, all right, this seems fine. It seems like maintenance knows what they're talking about. But, you know, it is, it is a little nerve wracking. At 5.19 a.m. UTC, flight 780 started a descent to flight level 230. And during the descent, engine one control system fault and engine two stall messages popped up on the ECAM. And there was a light popping sound that was heard along with a burning smell. Oh. Yeah, no good. Uh, the crew set the number two thrust level to idle. And then the ECAM showed engine one slow response and avoid rapid thrust changes. So the things that they saw before in engine two are now starting to happen on engine one. <laughs> with engine two now idle, not really giving any thrust. And this plane's got two engines, correct? Yes, yes. So then both going out isn't good. No, that's <laughs> we call that a uh-oh. <laughs> so like I said, number two engine is stalled. They've pulled that back to idle. Number one engine is now giving errors. At this point, the number one thrust lever was advanced to maximum continuous thrust. However, the number one engine only temporarily increased to about 57% and then dropped back down to 37%. So they're trying to get more thrust out of number one because it's their only engine left. Mm -hmm. And it starts to, and then it's like, nah, 37%. That's what you get, <laughs> which is really... Troubling, because they need more than that, because that's the only engine that's giving them any thrust at this point. I mean, because they're just gliding at this point. Is that enough to keep them in the air, or are they just would they stall? Or I don't know with any certainty. I'd have to, you know, I'd have to be an A330 mm -hmm. pilot to answer that. I'd speculate that 37% from one engine is not enough thrust. It would, it probably cannot climb. They might be able to maintain altitude, but even that might be questionable. So. If anything, they might it might just extend a glide. Mm. So they declare a pan-pan, which we've talked about before, the step below a mayday. So they declare this pan-pan, and the crew brief themselves on a one-engine approach and missed approach procedures, which is a little optimistic. I don't know if they could do a missed approach with one engine at 37%. Maybe they can. They know better than me. They're the ones briefing themselves. So maybe that answers your question. <laughs> at 5.30 a.m. UTC... When the flight was about 45 nautical miles southeast of Hong Kong at 8,000 feet, the ECAM showed engine one stalled message. So the crew pulls back the number one engine thrust lever to idle and disengages the auto thrust. So now neither engine's giving them any thrust. They're both at idle. The captain then moved both thrust levers up one at a time to see if that would do anything, but there were no thrust changes. They were both stuck at idle. So even, you know, the captain was trying to move his thrust levers to see if he could get anything out of them, and they, uh -huh. they just weren't responding. They were just stuck at idle. So nothing. Just like... Nothing. They're on, but they're not really giving any thrust. It's almost like you're pushing something that has no gas in it almost, you know, like... I would say it's almost akin to having your car in neutral. It's not quite the same. Okay. Yeah, where yeah. The engine's on, and you can try to give it gas. And of course, you're in a car, the engine will rev. But you're not moving. It's not The engine's not actually moving you. Okay. Yeah, that's a that that, I'm going to say that's probably the closest analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but that's the closest analogy I can give you. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> the crew then declared a mayday, uh, and they were cleared down to 3,000 feet. Uh, a few minutes later, while on their base leg, the crew moved the thrust levers again, but there was no direct response from the engines. Eventually, the number one engine increased to about 74% N1, while the number two engine remained at idle. What happened here, actually, is the captain was able to coax the number one engine up to 74%. I don't know what made him think to do this, mm -hmm. but, you know, like I said, he'd been trying to move the thrust levers and it wasn't responding. He decided to, like, almost make, like, a pinching 
shape with his with his right hand. And then like from the bottom of the thrust lever, he said he started very like delicately pushing the thrust lever up, like millimeters at a time, slowly but surely pushing it up. And for some reason, moving it that precisely and that slowly is what <laughs> caused it to start responding and begin increasing power. Uh-huh. So he's like, tickling it's like it like <laughs> massaging this, yeah. this lever trying to like all right just, uh, come on come on time to wake up <laughs> right very slowly coaxing it up you know eventually gets to a point where it's you know the engine starts not responding very well so that he pulls it back a little bit <laughs> that's why they end up with 74 percent in one i mean it's weird but it worked and so he's able to coax the number one engine to start giving thrust again which is good because you yeah. know now they have power the flight crew carried out the engine all, engine flame out, fuel remaining checklists in an attempt to clear the thrust control fault of that engine. And as per that checklist, our friend, the rat, was deployed manually. <laughs> I think, you know, they're just in case the engines die, you know, they want to have the rat out proactively so that it's doing its thing in case they need electrical power. That way that's, they don't lose it for any period of time. And now I'm just thinking about, you know, when you like uh, have a dog and you put it above like water and it starts paddling. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's what I think about now because so that one listener drew the rat like as a rat. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm just, that's all I, just, the rat's deployed. And it's just like. It's paddling above <laughs> the ocean. Yeah. That's a very cute mental image. But at 5.38 a.m. UTC, the first flap setting was selected. The flight was at 5,524 feet at a speed of 219 knots and was nine nautical miles away from the airport. At 5.38 a.m. UTC, the first flap setting was selected. The flight was at 5,524 feet at a speed of 219 knots and was nine nautical miles away from the airport. The captain tried to decrease speed by pulling back on the number one thrust lever, but there was no corresponding decrease in engine speed. So he goes, he brings the thrust lever back to idle, but the Uh engine is stuck at 74%. What? So earlier, they couldn't get any power, and now they can't stop the power. And did he try tickling it? <laughs> <laughs> I believe he did try tickling it again. He tried the same maneuver, but no, like it just wasn't responding. The number one engine was just stuck at 74%. So, you know, obviously they need to slow down to land. They're going too fast. So, yeah, you, you can't. What's the, hmm. Right. So what do you do here? In fact, I think if I remember right, at first, you know, they pulled back the thrust lever, you know, because they were going through the, the landing process. And I think at first they didn't realize that it didn't respond i think it's when they went to deploy the flaps they realized like oh we're at the maximum allowable speed for flap deployment why didn't we slow down and that's when they <laughs> look and they're like oh the engine stuck at 74 percent so the captain tried to get as close to the minimum selectable speed of 158 knots but they were at a speed of 244 knots which was four knots over the maximum allowable speed when the aircraft descended below a thousand feet the crew stowed the speed brakes and armed the ground spoilers At one nautical mile out, the crew selected flaps two position while at a speed of 234 knots. Then there was a message they got that said F relief that was displayed as the flaps extended to 8 degrees instead of the commanded 14 degrees. Basically, they're going too fast. So the the plane's complaining about this. Mm -hmm. VMAX, which is the maximum allowable speed, VMAX was now 204 knots. and They were still over speed, but the number one engine speed decreased to about 70% during final approach. Flight 780 touched down on runway 7 left at 5.43 a.m. UTC, 2,230 feet down the 12,467-foot runway at a ground speed of 231 knots. They touched down about 100 miles an hour faster than they were supposed to. They had no choice. They just 
had too much energy. You say 100 miles faster than they're supposed to. What speed were they supposed to? I'm curious about the ratio of, you know. So like I said, they touched down at about 230 knots. Since you're asking specifically about speed, I'm going to go ahead and give all the, um, all the different speeds. So they touched down at 230 knots, which is about 265 miles an hour or 426 kilometers an hour. That is 95 knots over the normal touchdown speed, which is 109 knots too fast, which is 176 knots too fast. So like I said, they touched down at 230 knots, which means they should have touched down at 135 knots. Or for miles an hour, what is that? They touched down at 265, which means they should have touched down at 176. Is that right? No, 156. I'm sorry. So they were like somewhere between a third and... Yeah, about a third over. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah. So way too fast. (laughs) Yeah. The airplane bounced. You know, obviously they hit the ground really hard. In fact, actually, a little side note, they were coming in so fast that the airplane's ground proximity warning was going off in the cockpit because the airplane thought they were about to crash because, you know, according to the logic of the plane, they're going too fast to land. So obviously they're about to crash. So the the ground proximity warning is sounding, telling them to pull up when really it's like, that's just, they have to land it. This is the speed they have to land at. Yeah. Yeah. The airplane just doesn't recognize that this is a landing. The airplane bounced and became airborne again very briefly. Then it rolled about seven degrees and pitched down 2.5 degrees at the second touchdown which caused the number one engine cowling to hit the runway. So, you know, it hit the ground, bounced, kind of rolled a little bit. The left engine hit the runway, and then, it, you know, it's, it hits the, uh, the whole plane lands and touches down again. Ugh. Both engine thrust reversers were deployed by the captain, but only the number one thrust reverser deployed successfully. So not only are they coming in way too fast, only one thrust reverser deploys. So, you know what that means? They've got to slam on the brakes. <laughs> Like they've yeah. got to really put the apply the brakes to get this plane to stop. And if only one thrust reverser, is it kind of off kilter now? Because it's like... Well, the number two engine wasn't giving thrust to begin mm. with, but I bet it would still cause a little bit of yaw in the plane. But, you know, they're slamming on the brakes anyway. So they're really trying to, you know, slow it down. If it did yaw a bit, they could probably compensate with, you know, rudder with the pedals as well. They're already pushing on okay. them anyway for the brakes. So the, you know, like I said, the, what did I say? The runway was a little over 12,000. It was 12,467 feet long. They came to a stop 1,013 feet from the end. So they used pretty much the entire runway to stop. Yeah. Which is <laughs> crazy. Well, it's crazy that they still made it because we've covered other cases where the planes run off the runway and crash. Right. So and that was a very real concern for them that, you know, if they're coming in too fast, are they going to be able to stop in enough time? Because at this point, you know, they have charts for all this stuff. You know, if you had a certain mm-hmm. weight, a certain speed, how much, you know, runway do you need to stop? They were off the charts. Like the chart didn't account for this kind of landing. So they weren't sure if they were going to be able to stop in time. But yeah, so that was definitely a very real concern for them. Then when they did finally come to a stop, the number one engine was still at 76% and one when they began their engine shutdown procedures. And like I said, they really, you know, had to use the brakes really hard to stop the plane. The brakes reached a temperature of 995 degrees Celsius. I assume that's way hotter than they're supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah, that's over 1800 degrees Fahrenheit, just for reference. So at this point, you know, that's hot enough to where the crew is worried, are the brakes going to catch fire? You know, what's going to happen? It's a real concern. So, you know, they go through their checklist and because they're afraid that the brakes might catch fire, the crew called for an evacuation. So they deploy the slides and the passengers evacuated using all eight slides. The evacuation was completed in about two minutes and 15 seconds. 
with, of course, some passengers are taking their bags, even though they're told not to. Mm. If you're ever in an emergency, we've talked about this before, leave your bag. You grabbing your bag in an emergency evacuation like this could cause someone else, could cause you to die, or it could cause someone else to die because, it, you know, you take too long to evacuate. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it because it's like, it's not just about you. It's about like everyone behind you in the plane. Right. If everyone, think about how long, you know, when you land and you get off the plane normally, and again, that's only one door, how long it takes for someone to stand up, get their bags, put it in front of them and go. It's like Versus just getting up and going. Now imagine there's a fire. <laughs> just leave your stuff behind. If you have to emergency evacuate, just evacuate. So all told, there were 62 minor injuries and one serious injury, but all of the injuries happened during the evacuation when coming down the slides. And we've talked about this before. Like there's a, before the calling an evacuation, the crew has to decide, is it worth it? You know, people are going to be injured evacuating down the slides. You know, is it worth going through that pain? And in this case, they, they were worried about the fire, so they did it. Yeah, but how do they get injured on the slide? Because they look fun. <laughs> they look fun, but it's still really high. If you hit it wrong, you might bounce or you might, you know, come down too straight. I have it written here. The serious injury that happened here was a fractured dislocated ankle. So oh. I imagine it's someone who like didn't hit the slide correctly and probably hit the ground too hard. Ooh, or yeah, that hurts. Or, or I guess also there's like older people and children and... Yeah, I, I, in fact, uh, I, I watched an interview with one of the survivors of this incident and he talked about how he was on this flight with his mother, who I want to say his mother was like 82 years old and that they were like the last two passengers off the plane. And, you know, he, of course, was very concerned about her going down the slide. Mm -hmm. I don't think she actually got injured. But yeah, if you think about all the older people as well on that plane or people who maybe who don't have full mobility or have some kind of either injury or some kind of um, disability or something. Yeah, people are going to get hurt. So the investigation was carried out by the Civil Aviation Department of Hong Kong. Fuel samples were collected from the aircraft and they found there was a trace quantity of translucent spherical particulate matter in some of the fuel samples. This material was also found in some of the engine components. When they're taking you know, the engine apart, they find almost like a, a dust in some of the parts. And you know, when they find it in the fuel and they look at it under a microscope and it, all of these little, well, this particular, it's all spheres. It's all perfect little spheres. Just inside of it, just like all gummed up? Yeah, in the fuel, like gummed up in some of the components. So they analyze it, and the results indicated they were predominantly made up of carbon, oxygen, and sodium with moderate amounts of chlorine and sulfur. They were mainly sodium polyacrylate, which was consistent with superabsorbent polymer. And these superabsorbent polymer materials are used in filter monitors installed in fueling dispensers. So in the... Hmm, do I spoil it? Yeah, I'll say it. Uh, <laughs> This kind of polymer is used in the filters in the fuel trucks that fuel the planes so that they absorb all the water. If there's any water in the fuel, this polymer is supposed to absorb it. That way only pure fuel gets put up into the plane. Mm -hmm. However, for some reason now, they're finding this polymer that should be in the filter in the fuel truck. It's in the fuel tank and in the engine components of this plane, which obviously it shouldn't be there. So it's just like leaked out? into the fuel and then got just jammed up everything with little balls? Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, even if you think about a car, mm -hmm. I'll use a car example. I don't know how much you know about cars, but if you think about like, this is, it's very different in an engine. I'm, I realize this analogy is not perfect. I'm going to use this because it's the closest thing that people might understand. If you think about like a piston moving in a cylinder of a car, fuel and air get put into the cylinder, the piston compresses it, a spark plug ignites it, it goes down. But that piston's constantly moving up and down. 
and there's oil in there, so you have oil in your car, it lubricates the piston moving in the cylinder. Imagine if, like, instead of oil lubricating that piston, if mm-hmm. it got gummed up with this spherical polymer. It's like, then it, it's more difficult for it to move, and then eventually it gets stuck, and it's not able to move around anymore, so your engine would fail. Kind of similar to what happened here. And that's why, well, there were errors where it was getting gummed, and then once they got gummed enough, they shut down. Right, right. So it's exactly. Like slowly kind of, sl- oh, it's getting worse, da, 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 da. And that explains why he couldn't slow down is because it was... It was stuck open. It was gummed into fast mode. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. I know sugar doesn't do this, but like that's the whole thing. You like put sugar in your gas tank or, you know... Don't do that, by the way. No, 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 no. <laughs> You're not supposed to. I know it's bad. Dad or Coke or whatever. There's like... Anything in the gas tank is going to be bad. But yes, when you're, you're talking about sugar especially. Because like it, if you think about it, like... When it heats up, it melts and then becomes very sticky and brittle, you know, like caramel. Yeah. I just know it's like a really mean, like, prank. I wouldn't even call it a prank. I call it more like vandalism. Yeah, destruction of a vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, anything in fuel is bad, which is why, you know, like I mentioned, when the captain for this flight was doing the pre-flight checklist, you know, they checked the fuel to make sure there's no water in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it's also, is there any sediment? They want to make sure that it's pure fuel and there's nothing else in there. So I'm going to use an acronym here. Superabsorbent polymer, I was going to say SAP. That's what they refer to it in the report, SAP. So there's a significant quantity of SAP spheres in fuel samples drained from the variable stator vane actuator and control unit, as well as the fuel metering unit for engine number one. Fuel samples were collected from both the upstream and downstream of the filter vessel on the dispenser that was used to fill up this plane at Juanda. There was no sign of SAP spheres in the ground fuel samples, but they found water containing sodium chloride in a fuel sample collected from header pit 3. So, so far, you know, they're looking to see if the spheres are in the fuel in the ground, and they don't mm-hmm. find any, but instead they find some salt water in one of the, the header pits where the fuel goes through. And this, this header pit is a low point in the hydrant circuit that supplied the fuel stand that filled up this plane. So the place where the fuel truck went to get its fuel, there was some salt water in there or I should say not salt water, there was some salt in the fuel that it got that it then went and put into the plane. And that's what contaminated it? Salt? Well, they have to figure it out. So right now, all they know, I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil where we're going yet. But right now, all they know is like, obviously that shouldn't be there. But you know, how does salt in that header pit, how does that result in SAP ending up in the plane? Because mm-hmm. obviously it's not salt that's in the plane, it's SAP. So they inspect the fuel storage facility located upstream of the hydrant circuit, and there was no sodium chloride corrosion there. So obviously it's coming from here. For hydrant refueling, the fuel dispenser, which is the fuel truck, is an interface between the hydrant system and the aircraft. So the fuel comes from the hydrant system into the fuel truck and from the fuel truck into the aircraft. And the fuel truck has filtration provisions with 40 filter monitors installed in a filter vessel to remove particulate matter and any water, like we talked about, it has those filters to, to mm-hmm. get the water. That's what the SAP is supposed to do from the fuel during the refueling process. That's just like what it does automatically. It's not like a precautionary thing where it's like filtering, right? Right. Or, I mean, it, this is a precautionary thing, but it's done automatically. It's done all the time. Every mm-hmm. time it fuels, it's like a default thing. There's just filters in the truck that are constantly filtering it. Okay. There's no harm in doing it all the time. So they just do it all the time. It's better to safe than sorry, right? Especially when it yeah. comes to aviation. If you're a fan of Black Box Down, you might try adding the Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation since obviously you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts, right? The Jordan Harbinger Show covers a wide range of topics, all with heavy-hitting guests in recent months. Jordan's interviewed a YouTuber who exposes scammy gurus and a researcher who studies what makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories. 
There's something for everyone here, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. But one constant through the whole podcast is Jordan's ability to pull bits of wisdom from his guests. So no matter what, you'll learn something here. We really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Once upon a time, private citizens were largely private, but one day something came along to change all that. What was it? It's the internet. Having your private life exposed used to be something only celebrities had to worry about, but now it can happen to anyone. So I use ExpressVPN to keep my data on lockdown, or at least private. ExpressVPN reroutes you through encrypted tunnel that anonymizes your IP address so data harvesters can't identify you or your location. Every time I turn on ExpressVPN, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. Best of all, it's super easy to use. I just open up the app, hit one button, I'm protected. You've heard me say it, I've been using it for over a year and a half now at this point. It's so easy to install and so unobtrusive in day-to-day surfing. Uh, you forget it's there, simple little button in my browser, turn it on, turn it off, couldn't be easier. So if you're like me and you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market, visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Go to expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. Why are the most comfortable clothes always the ugliest? I've lived in my sweatpants the last year, but I'd never leave the house in them. Uh, I'm in need of an upgrade, and maybe you are too. That's why you've got to check out Public Rec. They make elevated athleisure wear in all kinds of sizes because they believe comfort starts with a better fit. Their all-day, everyday pant fits men anywhere from 5'8 to nearly 7 feet tall. So your favorite lounge pants will be the pants you need now that you need pants. Public Rec spent years engineering the perfect blend of softness, stretch, and durability. Public Rec also makes elevated shorts, t-shirts, polos, jackets, even golf gear. And they just launched their women's line. I like this clothing so much. I went out, I I don't know how much I own. I think I own three different slacks, three different pairs of shorts from Public Rec. It's super comfortable. Uh, I can't say enough. Don't have to worry about fiddling with a button. It's just like slip it on, slip it off. It's my favorite pants to wear. I mean, hands down, no questions asked. So Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for Black Box Down listeners. Go to publicrec.com, use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN, receive 10% off. That's publicrec, which is R-E-C.com. Use our promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for 10% off. So they removed these 40 filter monitors from the fuel truck that fueled up this flight, uh, and they analyzed them. Examination of the filter monitors revealed that the SAP layers had been exposed to water. Most of the SAP spheres taken from the aircraft fuel sample had a size ranging from 5 to 30 micrometers. And further analysis revealed the presence of crystalline sodium chloride on the surface of some of them. The composition of the SAP spheres was mainly sodium polyacrylate, which was consistent with the material used in the first water absorption layer of the filter monitor. Sodium polyacrylate is the kind of SAP which, when in contact with water, is activated to absorb the water and turns into a gel that swells to fill the filter monitor. So the way it's supposed to work is if there is water in the fuel, it comes into contact with the sodium polyacrylate, which then absorbs it and becomes a gel and removes the water from the fuel so that the fuel continues flowing into the jet. And the, what happens with the gel? It just like squirts out or like... It sits in there in the filter and then they just change okay. the filters every so often. It's like normal operating procedures. Some flow tests were set up with fresh water and salt water to see how the SAP layer would be affected in the filter. When water penetrated the filter monitor, the SAP layer was activated and swelled quickly to reduce the flow. 
The test result for a new filter monitor demonstrated an effective shutdown of the flow with minimal leak virate after the element water absorbent media had been activated by the water. So what they're saying is when the water hits the SAP, you know, it gels, becomes mm-hmm. thicker, and as a result, the fuel flow is restricted a bit and the fuel flow slows down. So it's like there's less pressure, and that's probably when they change the filter out. Like, oh, you know, the, the pressure's going down. It's probably the filter needs to be swapped out, and they would swap the filter out. Yeah. SAP material was found on the fuel entry surface of the final filtration media migration layer. This suggested that having reacted with water, the SAP extruded through the layers but was contained by the media migration layer. So for some reason, the SAP extruded through the layers and it didn't stay in the filter, but it continued along with the fuel. Is it because there's just a lot of it and it can't the, the filter can't stop it all? Well, what should happen if, uh-huh. if there was just a lot of it is the filter would just gel up entirely and then restrict fuel flow to the point where they have to change it because the fuel's not going through. When you say change it, though, I mean, this is just when they're fueling up. Right. Okay, not... Like during flight, this is just Correct. them. This is in the fuel truck on the ground. Okay, yeah. But at some point, I started thinking they were like, this was happening in the flight, but no, this no, no, is no. just like. This is during the fueling on the ground. Okay. So, like I said earlier, they found water and they found salt water. So, the next part of the test is well, let's run salt water in with the fuel through the test. That test showed the performance of the filter monitors were compromised in terms of both effective shutdown of flow and leak rate. SAP material was found on the fuel exit surface of the final filtration media migration layer and onto the perforated aluminum center tube. This suggested that the SAP, having reacted with salt water, had extruded through all layers of the filter monitor. SAP was also found on the fuel exit surface of the fiberglass filtration layer, implying possible reverse flow and therefore movement of SAP within the filter monitor. So when salt water is in there with the jet fuel, Mm -hmm. the salt water causes the filter to break down. And then oh. that's what causes the SAP to escape from the filter and then flow along with the fuel. When the investigators first actually found the truck, you know, they, they, they track down the truck that supplied the fuel for this flight. They track it down and they go to pull the filters out from it. They noticed that one of the filters was like crumbled, like it had been crushed. And they, huh. they didn't know why. And when they were doing their tests and they set up a brand new filter and they ran salt water and fuel through it, that test filter also became crushed the same way the one in the truck did. But why are they running salt water? Well, they ran both, but it's because when they tested that hydrant, like I said, they found sodium chloride in there. Salt. Oh, okay. So, but this is this is them testing, trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, that, there should never be salt water. There shouldn't be water, and there definitely shouldn't be salt water. Yeah. So when they're doing this test, because they found salt in that hydrant, they're like, well, let's run salt water through just to see what happens. And that's when they discover, oh, if there's mm. salt water in here, these filters just kind of crumble and the sap material goes into the fuel and into the plane so that they're like aha right it's a like light bulb goes off and uh, of course the fuel contaminated by these sap spheres causes problem for the engines the main metering valve of the fuel metering unit of both engines may have been compromised which affected its correct operation and the main metering valve from what i understand very simply is almost like a master valve that regulates the flow of fuel into the engine so when they adjust the throttle If they throttle up, the main metering valve opens up more to allow more fuel to flow in, which gives more thrust. When they pull back, the main metering valve closes, restricting fuel, which causes the engine to produce less thrust. That's my understanding of it. And the main metering valve on both engines was totally gunked up with SAP. The EPR fluctuations are possible during onset of fuel-borne contamination at levels that the forces within the main metering valve can overcome. 
the extended duration of the EPR fluctuation, and whether the contaminant will seize the main metering valve will depend on the nature, concentration, and buildup rate of the contaminant, which are variables. So the investigation could only identify the nature of the contaminant, but was unable to determine their concentration and buildup rate during the accident flight. They can just say, like, we know this is what caused it, but we don't know what the, you know, what the tipping point is and how quickly it was building up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not possible to determine the exact mechanism of how the contaminant had affected the main metering valve operation from engine parameter fluctuation to finally complete seizure and loss of thrust control. So, I mean, honestly, I'm not too worried about that. I feel like that's kind of academic. There shouldn't be SAP in there to begin with. You know, they're just trying to figure out how much is too much. <laughs> Right. And like, <laughs> but none is good. So none, none is ideal. <laughs> Any is too much, probably. It's like, how close can we get to the edge of that cliff? Right. But, you know, I mean, that's part of all, all these investigations. Yeah. They want to figure out exactly and have a very precise answer. And just they're not able to give an exact precise answer. And for obvious reasons, they don't want to uh, recreate this scenario. <laughs> so I guess like the big question is why was there salt water? Why was there sodium chloride present there? This shouldn't have happened. So they rewind a little bit and they try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. In 2009, there was an apron extension project that was initiated for the Juanda Airport. The project included the extension of an existing underground fuel hydrant system to provide a total of eight hydrant refueling provisions to some stands. The extension work began on March 5th, 2010. The task force asked Perdomina, who's the supplier of the fuel, to assist the contractor to shut a set of valves in the header pit 3 to isolate the affected hydrant piping. So they're working, you know, on March 5th, they were working in the header pit, header pit three, where the fuel truck got its fuel from. The Juanda Airport is located close to the seashore and has three regulating ponds that contain sodium chloride, with the closest one being 300 meters away from the work site. Mm. There were some rains during the construction, which caused the work area to have several muddy puddles. On April 7th, the task force sent a fuel purchase order to Pertamina for flushing of the affected hydrant refueling circuit. On April 9th, 2010, they flushed the pipes with fuel that was then collected by a tanker for disposal that would have been taken care of by the contractor. So they run fuel through it to try to flush it out for any impurities, and then they take away that fuel for disposal. The contractor stated they had originally planned a secondary flushing on the following week, but later rescheduled it to the end of April 2010, when the Director General Civil Aviation of Indonesia's technical team would be present. Pertamina had no information from the task force or contractor prior to the event that the project would involve primary and secondary flushing. After primary flushing, Pertamina personnel that were assisting assumed that since the ring circuit had been reopened for stands 5 to 10, they could resume hydrant refueling for these. Pertamina then flushed more fuel through the circuit and carried out some visual checks that resulted in bright and clear. Some fuel was also sent to a lab for testing and came back as fit for use, so they informed the task force they would resume in refueling operations. So basically... They were supposed to flush it twice. They flushed it once, delayed the second one, and it kind of got lost in the bureaucratic shuffle. Right. And then they just go ahead and start using the system anyway, even though it hasn't been flushed twice. The task force told the investigators that completion of the project, including the fuel hydrant extension, had to be accepted by the Director General Civil Aviation of Indonesia, who would deploy a team to the site and conduct an inspection. Only after final acceptance would the new stands become operational and the refueling operation of the affected hydrant system could be resumed. There was no record of such acceptance and the final check had not been done because like we said, they had delayed the second flushing so that the director general could come by and approve it and they just never got around to it. And if they had flushed it properly? It probably would have been okay. They probably would have flushed out the remaining sodium chloride that was in that pit. That's why you 
flush the toilet. Yeah, give it a courtesy flush. If you need to do two, then do two. Yeah. Don't just do one flush and walk out. Don't do one flush and leave it for the next person. That's what happened here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and go through the findings here. There's quite a bit. <laughs> There's quite a few findings here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and go through them right now. In accordance with the company procedure, the captain performed a visual and water check of the dispenser fuel sample together with the CPA ground engineer. It was reported the fuel was clear and bright with no trace of water. Like we said, their visual inspection, it was fine. Because like I said, these spherical particles were tiny, tiny. You can't see them with your naked eye. Well, mm-hmm. if enough of them were that were present, you probably could. But in a casual inspection of the fuel, when you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. Yeah. Fuel contamination was not known to the flight crew and any person before and during the flight. During the flight with both engines operating, fuel contaminant SAP spheres started to affect the engine fuel component operation. Some SAP spheres were trapped in the clearance of the moving parts of the fuel metering units on both engines, causing stiction in the control of the FMU and resulting in EPR fluctuations. So stiction is a funny word. Before we go any further, uh-huh. we, we had to verify that it's a real word. And stiction is the static friction that needs to be overcome to enable relative motion of stationary objects in contact. So it's like when two things are touching and rubbing together, stiction is the pressure that you need to overcome in order to move the two things along each other. Yeah, so it's like static static. friction put together. It's a good word. I'm going to start using it. It's the black box down word of the day. Stiction. Stiction. You learned something else today. So the stiction in the FMUs worsened and triggered various engine control ECAM messages related to the number two engine during the cruise. We talked about that, all the different error messages they got. Mm -hmm. SAP spheres were found in the aircraft fuel tanks, the engine fuel pipes, and engine fuel components. The SAP spheres could not be self-created in the fuel system under normal aircraft operation. Therefore, their source was external to the aircraft and, like we said, came from the fueling truck. Both FMUs were seized by SAP spheres. The investigation cannot determine the exact mechanism of how the SAP spheres had affected the main metering valve operations from stiction to finally complete seizure. Therefore, cannot identify when and at what stage the seizure of the main metering valve could occur. We talked about that too. They just can't precisely say how much was too much and when it Mm -hmm. happened. We just know it was enough and it messed up. Mm-hmm. The aviation fuel in the hydrant circuit supplying stand number eight at Juando was contaminated with salt water. The SAP media in the filter monitors of the dispenser when reacted with salt water in the fuel turned to gel state and caused an increase in differential pressure indication and vibration of the refueling hose during the refueling. Remember I said that the operator of that truck said he felt a vibration and thought it was air in the system? Mm-hmm. It was really the salt water causing the SAP to gel up and continue through the process. You can even hear it getting gummed. Right. The performance of the filter monitors was compromised by the presence of salt water in the fuel and could not activate the shutdown mechanism to cut off the flow. The exact mechanism of SAP sphere generation from filter monitor during flight 780 refueling could not be established. However, as part of the investigation, the event mimicking test had generated SAP spheres. This demonstrated that the presence of salt water in the fuel and under an operating profile of repetitive low flow rate refueling as in Juanda could have generated SAP spheres. This is just like how I talked about how they set up that secondary testing with a brand new filter and ran salt water and fuel through it and it, uh-huh. it crumpled and looked like the one in the truck. Yeah. Fuel samples collected from the reworked hydrant after the accident contained salt. Juanda is located close to the seashore, has three regulating ponds. The water of the regulation pond closest to the apron extension work site contains salt. During the tie-in period, there were records of heavy rainfalls and there were water puddles at the work site. And they keep repeating this, kind of like speculating that maybe uh-huh. the salt, because of the rain, like maybe it flooded up and went over into the, the hydrant. So it was just rainwater rushing down into like what? 
How did it end up in the thing that they're pumping? Is it just I'll tell you what. The next finding I'm about to read kind of uh-huh. explains it. So let me read okay. this and then we'll talk about it. Okay. It was likely that the water puddles at the work site contained salt. It was likely that due to a shortfall in adherence to tie-in procedures, salt water could have entered the hydrant refueling circuit during the hydrant extension work. So because of the rain and because of all this other stuff that was going on, there were salt water puddles in the area that could have run off into the hydrant or that could have been moved over by wind or for whatever reason, the salt water puddles that existed made their way over here. You know, run off, you know, after it rains a lot, water goes mm-hmm. everywhere. That's most likely how it happened. It just kind of somehow got drained into the... Into where the fuel is. Yeah, into the fueling system. Because they were working on it and it was open because there, were, there was work being done on it. Oh, okay, yeah. Remember, they were ex- extending the apron. They were doing apron work. That's right. Okay, yeah. I was thinking, like, how did it just get in there? That, no, no, <laughs> it, it was already dug up because they were working on it. Okay. Like we talked about, the flushing procedure had not adequately addressed all essential elements stated in a set of guidelines being accepted as an international practice in cleaning of aviation fuel hydrant systems in airports. It was likely that the flushing did not completely remove the salt water in the hydrant refueling circuit. Last one here. The recommissioning process of the reworked hydrant circuit was not properly coordinated by the task force and the operation of the reworked hydrant system was prematurely resumed. I know that kind of repeated some of the things we said, but I thought it was interesting to at least read the exact findings from the report. So you hear like the official explanations for uh, what happened. Yeah. So of course the causes, big surprise, the accident was caused by fuel contamination. Yeah. <laughs> the contaminated fuel, which contained SAP spheres, uplifted at Juanda, subsequently caused loss of thrust control on both engines of the aircraft during approach to Hong Kong. Honestly, this could have been much, much worse. This could have been yeah. a terrible tragedy. I hate to say it, they kind of lucked out, especially that last minute tickling of the thrust levers by the captain to regain thrust so that they don't have to ditch. He said in an interview that, you know, when they lost engines and they were gliding over the sea, that he thought about the U.S. Airways 1549 and he thought about Captain Sullenberger ditching that U.S. Airways plane into the Hudson River. And, you know, that because that had happened a year before this event. So if he hadn't been able to tickle it awake, they would have gone into just into the water. It's possible. It's hard to say, but it's very possible they would have had to ditch into the South China Sea, which is way more difficult than ditching into the Hudson River because... Since it's the ocean, like the swells are really big. We've talked about this. Remember that Ethiopia Airlines flight that tried to ditch into the mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. into the oceans, like, and then it just like ended up being torn apart and flipping right. over. The swells, you know, are, are much bigger. It's just really difficult to do in the first place, and it's way more difficult in the ocean. So luckily, they didn't have to do that. I mean, that would have been way, way worse. And also, I mean, it could have happened further away from land. Like they could have lost both engines, yeah. you know, out over the middle of the ocean instead of just a couple miles away from Hong Kong. You know, they were practically there when they finally lost everything. So they got some luck and some really good skill by the pilots here. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. I got distracted here. Back to the causes here. <laughs> the following chain of events and circumstances had led to the uplift of contaminated fuel to Flight 780. The recommissioning of the hydrant refueling system after the hydrant extension work in Juanda had not completely removed all contaminants in the affected hydrant refueling circuit. Salt water remained in the affected hydrant refueling circuit. We talked about that. There was already salt water in there. Mm -hmm. The recommissioning of the hydrant refueling system after the hydrant extension work in Juanda was not properly coordinated, which led to the premature resumption of the hydrant refueling operations while the hydrant system still contained contaminants. We talked about that. They weren't done. They were supposed to flush it again, but they prematurely <laughs> started using it again. They need that double flush. Uh, yeah. The refueling operation in Juanda, in particular, low flow rate refueling, differential pressure recording and monitoring, did not fully comply with the international fuel industry latest guidance. 
I don't know exactly what they mean by that. My speculation is that they should have noticed something was wrong with the low flow rate. Like I said, the operator did hear that the system was operating a little strangely, was making noises. That's my speculation. I'm not a, I'm not a pilot and I'm definitely not uh-huh. an accident investigator. I do not work for, the, <laughs> for them. <laughs> a number of unscheduled filter monitor replacements after the premature resumption of hydrant refueling operation were not investigated by the fuel supplier and hydrant operator at Jawanda. So they knew they were having to replace filters in these trucks a little too often and they didn't bother to investigate why, you know, leading up to this accident. Mm-hmm. They were like, huh. And the, yeah, like, that's weird. <laughs> Nothing should ever be weird in, uh, in aviation. <laughs> it's like, if something's weird, you need to look into it. You need to investigate why is this happening. And to that point, that's the next point in this list here. The unusual vibration observed during the refueling of Flight 780 was not stopped immediately and properly investigated by the fuel supplier personnel. Mm. The investigation also identified the following deficiencies and contributing factors that may cause potential fuel contamination. There were no established international civil aviation requirements for oversight and quality control on aviation fuel supply at airports. There were no established international civil aviation requirements for refuel operational procedures and associated training for aviation fuel supply personnel. And last one, the manual monitoring of differential pressure changes in fueling dispenser during refueling was not effective. So, I mean, just kind of saying, maybe we need some more internationally recognized oversight for these particular things to stop this from happening again. And now for my favorite part of every episode, the safety uh-huh. actions. What was done to stop this <laughs> from happening again in the future? Pertamina arranged an audit in July 2010 of their aviation fuel facility and refueling operation in Juanda by an external aviation fuel expert. The audit findings raised during this audit were subsequently addressed by Pertamina to the satisfaction of the auditor. So get an outside party to come in, look at the fuel at this airport supplied by the supplier, make sure it's good, and then you know try to fix any issues that are raised. Great. You want to hear that. Yeah. Third party audit. Right. Pertamina had arranged refresher training for their refueling personnel by qualified aviation fuel experts with a view to improving their awareness during the refueling operation. Just kind of make sure they're paying attention. And if anything weird happens, do something about it. To address the shortfalls and improper coordination in the recommissioning of the hydrant refueling system, the task force of the Director General Civil Aviation of Indonesia had coordinated a review to the recommissioning procedures of the affected hydrant refueling circuit a revised recommissioning procedure was formulated. Cleaning and draining of the affected hydrant refueling circuit were completed. Internal inspection of hydrant piping was done in September 2011, and the result being evaluated by the task force. So again, go in there, let's clean it some more, inspect it again, really <laughs> make sure it's cleaned out and that everything's good there. The International Civil Aviation Organization issued a manual on civil aviation jet fuel supply to provide guidance to aviation globally about the existence of internationally accepted practices to reinforce the need for the compliance. So again, just issuing reminders, issuing guidance. They put out a manual about how to properly do this, just you know, better training, better reminding people the way it's supposed to be done. Airbus issued a service letter that highlighted the roles and responsibilities of key players with regard to the fuel standards and specifications up to the point of interplane refueling. So just more highlighting things you need to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Airbus updated their quick reference handbook to include a new section to assist the crew in determining and handling fuel contamination. So, you know, yeah, procedures good. in flight, yeah. Help them determine if something fuel contamination. Right, help them troubleshoot it. You know, determine one and troubleshoot two. When Cathay Pacific conducted a series of additional line station fuel farm audits in Juanda with the assistance from external aviation fuel experts. So again, just more inspection there at that airport. And the fuel monitors were strengthened. So, yeah, I mean, this all sounds great. <laughs> more oversight, more, you know, I think the biggest thing is Airbus adding things to their quick reference handbook so that crews 
can identify and figure out what to do in the future. I don't think mm-hmm. Tickle the Throttle made it into the quick <laughs> reference handbook, but it, it worked in this particular case. This particular flight, or this particular plane, I should say, from this incident, actually no longer flies. It was transferred to another airline in 2011. So it continued flying after this incident. I was going to ask, did it destroy the plane? Because, you know, it had all the little ball goops. They can clean that out. Okay. So it's not a big deal. It's probably a bigger deal to the engines because you can replace the engines on a plane. Those actually come separately from the plane. So the plane continued to fly. It was transferred to a different airline. But its final flight was in October of 2020. So it actually does not fly anymore. But it did continue to fly after this incident. Wait, October of what? 2020? About a year ago. Actually, it was October 14th, 2020. So almost exactly a year ago. Wow. Wait, does this episode come out? This, yeah, <laughs> a year ago from this episode, when this episode comes out. What, what a coincidence. Exactly a year ago. Strange. Anyway, last little note. The pilots for this flight are both retired now. Captain Waters retired in 2013 and Captain Hayhoe retired in June of 2021. So just a few months ago. They were both... Uh, very honored. They received a lot of honors as a result of this incident for their handling yeah. of the incident and landing the plane. They were very decorated pilots as a result of this. Yeah. Sounds like, I mean, they figured out how to get it down and land it without hurting people. If not for the slides. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's out of their control. I mean, they did yeah. absolutely the, the best they could. It's absolutely commendable. I can't imagine, you know, when everything's going wrong, like trying to still maintain that clear presence of yeah. mind, still being there, still like troubleshooting thinking like, these are the problems. How are we going to work through it? I mean, hats off. Absolutely commendable. Yeah. But that's it for this episode, Cathay Pacific Flight 780. I don't know if I can find... I've seen like some demonstrations of what the main metering valve looked like with the SAP in it. I don't know if I'll be able to find any. I'll see if I can dig some up. Let me make a note to myself. I'll see if I can dig some up to put on social media. I'm not going to promise mm-hmm. that. But if not, worst case scenario, I'll see if I can find a photo of the main metering valve so you can see what that looks like. And I'll put some of those photos online for you to see on our social media. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget, I feel like I always forget, we have a YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, if, if you want, if you like listening to podcasts on YouTube, you can get it there. There's no additional visuals or anything. It's just the same audio podcast you get anywhere else, but it's just a way for you to get your podcast via that route, if that's something you like. It reminds you that it comes out too. Yeah, you get like a YouTube notification, if that's your kind of thing. Anyway, the YouTube channel is Black Box Down. Uh, you can go check it out, if that's your thing. But anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another new episode. And we'll talk to you guys then. Thanks. Thanks.